0: Welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, June 10th at 1030 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. We are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everybody. Margot Sanger Katz, the New York Times. Good morning. And Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. Later in this episode, we'll play the interview I did last week with Chiquita brooks LaSure, the brand new administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And since this is our 200th episode, we'll also take a few minutes to reflect on what we've learned these past four years. Margot and Joanne, you were there for our very first episode. And Sarah, you were on during those first few weeks. So thank you, ladies, for sticking with us. But uh, first, the news. So I think by far the biggest Health news of the week is the FDA's approval of aducanumab, if I am pronouncing that correctly, which is either the first truly breakthrough drug to slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease or not. Sarah, I'm so glad you're here with us this week. Why is this drug approval so controversial? So there's probably at least a half dozen reasons why it's controversial. Um,
1: to sort of go back um, a little bit in history. Biogen, the company that um, makes this product, conducted two large clinical trials of the drug, and before they fully completed, a independent data monitoring committee actually told them, you should stop them, um, it doesn't look like they're going to succeed, so they're sort of looking at the safety of the patients, and they plan to kind of nix the whole program. FDA ended up actually talking to them, convincing them to reanalyze some of the data and go through and submit the application to FDA. And they ended up with one large clinical trial that failed and another one where the drug did seem to have some effect on improving patients' cognition. But people were still, a lot of scientists and doctors were still fairly skeptical about the drug. It went to an FDA advisory committee, and while a good portion of the FDA reviewers who presented to that committee backed the drug, there was some disagreement even among FDA's own internal scientists and then the advisory committee very almost unanimously you know vo- voted down the product and recommended FDA not approve it lo and behold this week FDA decided to approve it they did some unexpected things there. The expectation was if FDA was approving the drug, they were doing a traditional approval where a drug has to show some kind of clinical benefit, improving a patient's course of disease and how long they live, et cetera. And FDA decided to go this other pathway known as accelerated approval saying, well, the drug hasn't demonstrated this type of clinical benefit yet. But we think that based on this marker we're showing that in your brain you have these patients that have Alzheimer's often have these plaques that build up. And the drug seems to reduce those plaques. And there's a hypothesis that if you reduce those plaques, you improve patients' condition with the disease. Um, And they decided to give them an accelerated approval based on that with the promise that they'll go back, do more clinical trials, and show that it actually improves the clinical benefit. It's a little bit strange since they've already had these big trials, and normally you wouldn't do accelerated approval once you've already seen, in some cases, you know, the clinical benefit doesn't seem to be
0: there. Yeah, I mean, normally this accelerated approval is for something that you haven't really done the clinical trials on, and they say, we'll give you this sort of provisional approval. You go out and do the trial and prove that it does what we think it does. Right,
1: and the idea usually, it started... with the aids epidemic but it's often used most often in cancer now and the idea is it can take a while for people to progress to figure out how long the drug helps them live right but if you see the tumor shrinking or another sign that's predictive of that you approve it first because again these diseases need treatments patients are sick and dying now and then you go back but here it's fairly controversial that they would use this pathway because this amyloid hypothesis has been tested in many other drugs and hasn't seemed to work. FDA itself has written in guidance documents that they don't think this is a good endpoint for accelerated approval in this Alzheimer's space. So it really took a lot of people by surprise. Even at this advisory committee, FDA signaled to its outside advisors that they weren't looking to go this route.
0: Why is there something about Alzheimer's disease and finding a drug for Alzheimer's that's so... You know, I I don't want to use the word political because people will think partisan, but it feels sort of political small P here.
1: Some of the political elements I think that have come up here is, again, you have a disease that affects large swaths of Americans. I mean, this is a fairly common disease as people live longer. And we have cures to a lot of other diseases that used to kill us when we were much younger. The other issue is we do not have any disease modifying products yet. So if this does work, it would be the first. And so there's a huge need. Care um, for dementia and Alzheimer's patients is high. And it's hard to kind of take away that glimmer of hope from people when we've had so many failures in this space over the years. And that's where some of these patient-oriented groups, the Alzheimer's Association and others have argued, you know, we need something in this field to kind of spark other people to continue investing and developing drugs in this space. If we don't ever approve anything, people are just going to get out and run. You know, it's questionable logic, I guess, because there's also concern that if you approve a drug that's not so great, potentially, you know, does that incentivize people to develop drugs? If Biogen has priced this, and we didn't even get to the pricing side of
0: it yet. That's my note. We're going to get to that in a second. (laughs) Biogen
1: priced this drug really high. If a company can make large amounts of money, billions of dollars on a marginal drug, what's the incentive to work on the next drug that might actually be better? So there's questions about that, but there's been a lot of um, pressure in the patient community that something needs to
0: be available to give people hope and push the field forward. Yeah. And that, I mean, there's been this sort of perception that the that the patient advocacy groups are sort of leaning really hard on FDA to approve this. Um, and uh, you know already, I guess, two members of the advisory committee that voted not to approve this drug have quit. The, the FDA Advisory Committee, basically over this decision. I mean, is there there seems to be, and we'll get to the prices in a second and bring in everybody else, but there seems to be this sort of feeling that that FDA is, you know, who who's supposed to just call balls and strikes, is kind of succumbing to, to public pressure here, right?
1: Yeah, I definitely think um, people feel like they've succumbed to the pressure of the patient groups, perhaps the pressure of the industry. People are really questioning, again, If the amyloid hypothesis hadn't sort of been teetering on the edge of people thinking that was a complete failure, you know, maybe people would be more um, willing to say, okay, approve this drug, see if it pans out and go back. But I think people feel like they just looked for any way to get this drug across the finish line and they worry that it's going to set this precedent that's going to lower standards at the FDA for a long time to come.
0: So I feel like the piece of this that's most relevant for us is, as you mentioned, Sarah, the the enormous price tag of this. Um, uh, Biogen has set the price at $56,000 a year. It's an infusion. So it will be a Part B drug, um, which will mean that patients will be subject to a 20 percent, uh, assuming Medicare approves it, which is a whole other issue. But, would, you know, it would be. Medicare patients would have to cough up probably $10,000 a year as their share um, of what this drug is going to cost, which could create a situation where there will be, you know, haves and have nots. And I'm curious from Joanne and Margot if you think this will maybe kick along the, the drug price uh, issue that's kind of stalled in Congress right now.
2: I think one thing about the price is in addition to $56,000 just for the drug, their infusion costs, because this is not a pill, you don't pop it at home, you, you go in to have it infused. And, and you need brain scans, I'm not sure how many a year, but you need some frequent brain scans, it's an additional cost. It's a lot of money for Medicare, and the, the family burden, the family piece is gonna knock it out of reach for some people. And I think to answer your first question, periodically there's a drug that sets off, that reignites the drug brigade. It began back with Sivaldi and the hepatitis drug, which is actually a cure, it's actually a really fantastic drug, better than we thought at the time. And, you know, I think we brought this up before. The fight was over an $84,000 cost, which right now seems quaint (sighs) for something you take for a few weeks and cures you. I mean, it's still a lot of money. I'm not saying it was the right, but that sort of got us into this. And then the next one, I think, was the EpiPen, you know, that that price really rose. It's used by so many people or you need it for so many. I'm one of them. And, you know, things like CAR-T are so rare. They're not used widely. They have a million dollar price tag, but they're still not available for most patients. So, yes. Do I think this sort of sets it off again? Quite possibly, but I also just wanted to share one thought that I I saw online from, I believe, a geriatrician saying, Wow, you gave me $56,000 to take care of an Alzheimer's patient for a year. I'd probably use it to hire a really good caregiver and pay them a decent wage.
0: Yeah, I, I saw that too. I think that was a really important point that, um, you know, and my my colleague at Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, Tricia Newman, uh, points out that if a number, even people who don't have Alzheimer's, if this drug becomes commonly used by Medicare patients, it will drive up uh, premiums for everybody in the program because that's how Part B works. It's a, the premium is a percentage of how much Part B costs. And if this becomes a big part of Part B, then everybody's going to pay for it, um, regardless of whether they have Alzheimer's or not. I mean, Margaret, do you feel like this could, could touch off sort of a new round of discussion about, I guess, both drug prices and Medicare, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, it seems clear that the conversation about drug prices is ongoing in Congress. I think the president did not include it in his family, American family. Families plan I forget I have trouble remembering the names of all the various uh Biden bills but uh I think there was hope by some advocates for this legislation that it was going to be included in one of the big big Biden legislative packages but nevertheless like when I talk to people who work on this issue they remain optimistic that kind of behind the scenes the work is getting done um they're asking questions they're trying to think about how to write it uh it seems pretty clear the House. Um, you know worked really hard on its bill that it passed in the last congress and i think you know would be delighted to pass that again and i think in the senate Now that the Democrats are in charge of the Senate, there is some rethinking of a previous bipartisan bill that the Senate Finance Committee had developed. So I don't know exactly what shape this is going to take, but I do think that any time we have a really expensive drug, especially an expensive drug that is not terribly effective, that seems like a really good talking point for someone who is concerned about um, the rising price of drugs. As Joanne said, you know, Savaldi, which was this new cure for hepatitis C, was a pill that you took for a couple of months, and then you basically didn't have hepatitis to see anymore. It was really expensive and it did sort of set up an uproar, but at least that was a drug that really worked. This is a drug, you know, we're going to see, obviously, they're going to continue to monitor it. maybe it has some benefit, but it seems clear that um, if it had a huge effect, if it was a really effective drug, like we would know it from these large clinical trials. And so I think these kinds of drugs that are of marginal benefit and nevertheless have the ability to set these really high price tags do highlight how little control the government or any other payer has uh, over the relationship between cost and benefit. Um, and I just also wanted to make one other point, which I think plays into your question about the politics of this approval, which is you we know, were pretty far into the year. And the FDA is a really important regulatory agency that is making a bunch of really important decisions. You know, In some ways, the decisions about the COVID vaccines have been easy. Um, because they have turned out to be so effective and there is such an enormous need for them. But the idea that all of these COVID vaccines are being considered for emergency use authorization and ultimately for full approval, that we have this new Alzheimer drug coming online, there's you know a lot happening at FDA and we still do not have a confirmed leader of that agency or even a proposed leader of that agency. Right. Nobody's and
0: been nominated yet.
3: It's very striking and very weird. And I think It is hard to make difficult political decisions in an agency like FDA when you do not have political leadership.
2: And and one one question for Sarah. Um, This is a chronic, you have to take this forever. I mean, it's not a cure, right? There there are people with dementia who live for many, many years, and you would take this for the rest of your life. So it's 56,000 plus a year.
1: Right. That is my understanding so far. And I've seen some analysts kind of raise questions about how Medicare would handle that. So you're
2: talking hundreds of thousands of dollars for a questionable drug over a patient's lifetime.
1: Potentially. Potentially, again, if you're basing it on this idea that they're reducing plaques, could they require some kind of monitoring to sort of show the drug is at least having that effect before keeping it in a patient? But right, it's a huge swath of patients. FDA actually approved a much broader label for the drug, which, like, kind of will translate to how payers often use it um, than was studied in the trial, which is another point of controversy we didn't even talk about. Um, and actually, what FDA also didn't put in the label was a requirement for these PET scans or other scans to sort of prove patients have the plaques to start the drug and then follow up. And some people, again, wonder if they did that to sort of, again, make the coverage and uptake easier because that might tie Medicare's hands a little bit if they're not saying you need to have these PET scans. Right now, it's actually pretty hard to get any PET scans covered by Medicare in this space. It usually has to be done under the context of a clinical trial. So that could have been a hiccup. So there's like a lot of intricacies in this approval that make it a little bit harder for Medicare that people are kind of saying, hmm, we wonder why FDA did it this way, because even the company didn't propose that. And we don't have
2: great tools for Alzheimer's. I mean, there's lots of reasons that people can have dementia, ranging from drug interactions, which are easy to fix if you look for them, um, to Alzheimer's, to many other aging and vascular. And dementia is a big category. Even figuring out if if it works for some subtype of dementia, not others. I just don't think we're particularly there.
3: Julie, can I also just return to your point about um, the costliness to Medicare of this drug? So I think This is a complicated case because it seems like maybe this drug is not that good and you have to take it for a long time and it's really expensive. So it seems potentially like something that if you were dismissive of it, you could view it as wasteful for Medicare to spend so much money and uh, drive up premiums and require taxpayers to foot the bill for a treatment like this. But I think it's also a really good reminder that even though we often talk about trying to find efficiencies in healthcare delivery in order to lower Medicare costs, there's always this risk that Uh, medicine improves and technology improves. And, you know, it is not inconceivable that there could be a really great and effective treatment for Alzheimer's disease that comes down the pike or, or any other disease that affects a large number of Americans, a really great diabetes treatment, a really great um, obesity treatment. You know, there, there are lots of chronic diseases for which we do not have terrific treatments. And that is something that Medicare is potentially going to have to grapple with. You know, we are used to this idea that the amount that Medicare spends is like sort of fixed and medicine is sort of fixed. And then we make these kind of incremental changes over time. But big medical breakthroughs could be very expensive even as they improve the quality of older people's lives and improve our medical knowledge. So I think it's just a reminder that a really great Alzheimer's treatment is going to be probably even more expensive and it's going to be something that we're going to have to think about how to finance because we get, we'll get a lot of value out of that too.
2: there would be other offsets for long-term care needs, uh, family caregivers who have to give up work. I mean. Um, it might not be 100 percent offset, but there they're, they're are trade. I mean, I think that if we saw something that cured or significantly ameliorated dementia, people wouldn't be having the same conversation as they're having now.
3: Although I and, think you know, a lot of this funding is siloed, like a lot of those costs are cost to society, but they're not cost to Medicare. Men.
2: Yeah, but it, it's still. They are to Medicaid and there's a big overlap with people with a little dementia for
0: years. We, we we have to move on, but I want to make one more point, which is that one of the reasons that we're that we have mm-hmm. so much cost associated with Alzheimer's is because Medicare has done such a good job and medicine has done such a good job at helping people live longer. I mean we've cured all the things that people used to die of and Alzheimer's is by and large uh, a disease with, with few exceptions of older age. Um as you get older you're more likely to get it. So it's sort of it's it's a, it's a mark of success that so many people on have Alzheimer's because they haven't died of other things sooner. But we will definitely come back to this. Um, Meanwhile, uh, another Supreme Court decision day has come and gone with no word on the case that could radically change or even invalidate the Affordable Care Act. Uh, But meanwhile, the Biden administration this week tells us that as of early this year, more than, or I guess it's nearly 31 million people were covered by insurance made possible by the health law, either through the marketplaces or Medicaid expansion. That is a new record. It's up by some 4 million people. And that's before the recent enrollment surge sparked by new subsidies passed by Congress this year. Since we haven't talked about this in a while, somebody remind us what would happen if the Supreme Court actually strikes down the Affordable Care Act, which it could do.
3: So many things. So many things could happen. Um, But I think, you know, these numbers are a reminder that one of the immediate effects of this would be that lots of people would lose Uh, you know at least at the end of the year potentially would lose health coverage that they have now and that they rely on you know the medicaid expansion seems like the clearest example of this and you know many people who are getting sub using subsidies to purchase private plans would no longer have access to them but you know we've talked about this before the aca is a huge law it would also have effects on the regulation of health plans that people get through their work uh, it would affect the ability of people with pre-existing health conditions to buy insurance in certain circumstances. It would affect some FDA policy around the regulation of buy and approval of biosimilar drugs. It would affect rules on restaurants that require them to post calorie counts on their menus and a million other things. The Affordable Care Act has made major changes to Medicare policy, the way that Medicare pays for lots of things, including Medicare Advantage private plans and lots of kinds of medical treatments. Trying to unwind all of that is like almost unthinkable to me. I think so much of it is sort of just spread out and woven into the fabric of our healthcare policy. So I think in some ways it is appropriate to focus on the immediate coverage effects, because those are the things that are the most simple and the most simple to take away. But if the Supreme Court overturns the entirety of the Affordable Care Act, and Congress is not able to quickly restore it. It will be an enormous story for us, and it will have very wide-ranging effects throughout our health care system and our economy.
0: Yeah, just a reminder, we're expecting this decision sometime in the next, really, two weeks. I think the court, as of today, has like 20 or 21 cases left to decide, and this is one of them, and we expect to, to be getting more decisions soon. I wouldn't be surprised if this one came down on the last day, which could well be like the day before the Fourth of July, um, but we will we will be we will keep watching this. Meanwhile, although lots more people are getting coverage, uh, lots of people are still uninsured. Most notably, the millions of people in the dozen states that haven't expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Among those states is Georgia, and now Georgia's two freshman Democratic senators, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, are urging creation of a federal Medicaid look-alike program as part of whatever the next big piece of health legislation is that comes down. Uh, uh, in other words, it would be Medicaid, but without any state uh, financial obligation or apparently state involvement in running it. That would be an effective way to get around the reluctance from these mostly red states to expand Medicaid. But it would also be a really big step in federalizing health care, wouldn't it? It's It's hard to imagine Congress wanting to sort of open this basically can of worms.
3: Yes, it does seem like the policy that is that has been proposed by these two senators would be a pretty complicated and difficult lift just to implement. But I do think that they are not alone in really wanting to come up with a solution for this population of people who are in the Medicaid gap in these many states that haven't expanded Medicaid. And there have been various other proposals about how those people might be covered Um including one to just make them eligible for uh, ACA subsidies so they could get Affordable Care Act plans with cost-sharing reductions the same way that people who are just over the income threshold for Medicaid are able to get them. So these are two senators who are making a lot of noise about this, and I think uh, there is a concern. uh, You know, Senator Warnock is up for re-election very soon. He won in a special election, so he's up again soon and, you know, probably could use a win for his constituents. So I think him making a lot of noise about this is putting pressure on lots of other people to think harder about this issue. I also think that Medicaid expansion, maybe not this exact one, but some kind of Medicaid expansion to these people in the coverage gap is the kind of thing that might pair quite nicely with a drug pricing policy that we talked about earlier, uh, which would generate a lot of dollars to do other kinds of healthcare things.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see some, some effort at this. And I know, and they, and even they, in suggesting this sort of new federal program are offering up you know other possibilities for... Or getting these people covered. But it certainly looks like there's been a stalling. There were there was some movement in these last holdout states. And I would note that in Oklahoma, which did just expand, 50,000 people signed up in the first week of eligibility. But we still have Georgia and Texas and Florida, three really big states that aren't expanding, and a couple of million people basically with no access to health insurance because of that. Um, I, hard to know whether Congress is going to be able to do do anything, this, uh, this tightly divided Congress. But I would think that those people would be something of a priority um, if, in, in sort of the next attempt to do something about health care, right? Well, I mean, we don't know how
2: far this is going to move. I think it's sort of an attempt to reopen a conversation. I would be surprised to see this get into law in the near future. Um, it's a way of pressuring states too, like, uh, to, you know, do you want to control it? If you want to control it, you got to expand it. But there's some discussions about do you create some kind of public option that serves the Medicaid population? I mean, there are other ways of getting at this. I don't see a lot of movement right now. You know, there's no movement until there's movement. So you never know.
0: Yes. As as we know from these stalled talks on the infrastructure bill. All right. Well, let's talk about COVID. Um, Things are getting better here, kind of, except apparently there are millions of doses of J&J vaccine in state refrigerators that are about to reach their expiration dates. And despite offers of beer, donuts and cold, hard, cash via lotteries, there are still a declining number of people going to get vaccinated. Meanwhile, President Biden is in Europe, where they and pretty much the entire undeveloped world would love to have a fraction of the vaccine supply that we have. And upon arrival, he has now promised 500 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine. So enough for basically 250 million people in 100 countries. That's still just a fraction of what's needed. But is this enough to quiet some of the frustration by the rest of the world at the U.S. evident hoarding of vaccine doses? It, it seems like it's a good it's a decent down
1: payment but the frustration particularly on the left among people who want more access to vaccines worldwide is they feel like donations like this are not the right way to go. You essentially need to transfer the technology and the patents and allow other countries and Companies in those countries to make these vaccines. They feel like that's really the only feasible way to vaccinate everybody who needs to be vaccinated in enough time. So I think he'll get some credit and applause, but not quite what some people want to see.
2: I think it also depends what the other G7 countries do. They're having their summit now, you know, the next couple of days. This is a top agenda item. So I think we'll have a better idea in a week, you know, in a few days of what mix of donations and facilitating production in poorer countries or poorer regions is going to look like. Um, There are people talking about, you know, what Sarah just, uh, the patent debate as well, as just other ways of facilitating production. But, you know, building new factories and teaching people how to do this is not a 20-second fix either. I mean, it's billions with a B of people who need to be vaccinated. So we need We're going to have multiple approaches to doing it and to make sure there's capacity for the next crisis. I mean, you know, you've heard me say this before. I think we're, you know, we're very short-memoried as a nation. And I worry about whether we're going to just say, well, that's over, or whether we say, well, that's finally over. Let's get ready. And we're not really good at that second, as we've learned, right?
0: Yes. And as the G7 is learning. All right. Well, meanwhile, I want to highlight a story that you wrote, Joanne, this week about your experience getting vaccinated, because it was not a great experience, but it says a lot about our so-called health system. Um, In as few words as possible, what happened and why (laughs) is this a problem for people other than you?
2: (laughs) I had a, a very bad reaction to Pfizer, my first shot. Not requiring hospitalization, but enough that several doctors I ended up consulting, and internist and allergists, nobody thought I should take a second Pfizer. I reported it to all the places you're supposed to report things, to FDA and CDC and Pfizer. I got no advice. My doctors got no advice. And after I wrote about it, I heard from a lot of other people who had very similar symptoms who got no advice. This was a very pro-vaccine story, I should add. I spent two months getting vaccinated. I switched from Pfizer. To J&J, and I should also add that I have many family members who took Pfizer safely. Everybody in my family and extended family, and as far as I know, all of my friends are vaccinated. So I, I really wrote that carefully. You know, I believe in vaccination. I want to be protected from COVID. And I spent two months trying to figure out how to get a J&J dose to make the switch and how to have it in a medical setting that was safe for me. I had more typical reactions to J&J, but my body does not like COVID shots. (laughs) And so, yeah, my saga is you can still find it online.
0: Yeah. Usually, I'll post it and it's in a political magazine. I will indeed. All right. Well, as I mentioned at the top, this is our 200th episode of What the Health. We launched at the end of June of 2017, right in the teeth of the Republican repeal and replace fight. I want to thank, in particular, our intrepid panelists, several of whom have been with us from the start, for bringing their good information and good cheer to this podcast every week. I also thought this would be a good opportunity to look back on where we are four years on. So we're going to go around our virtual table here. And I I want each of you to tell me what's happened in health policy that has most surprised you and what has least surprised you. And I'm going to take the host prerogative to go first with this one. Um, What has surprised me most is not that we had a pandemic. That's been predicted for decades. What wasn't predicted was how unprepared our public health system was going to be to address it and how untrusting the public was going to be of health and science authorities, something we are still grappling with right now. And what has surprised me least in four years, that health is still and possibly more than it was then a partisan issue, that Republicans still can't bear to admit that any part of the Affordable Care Act is working, and Democrats and Republicans can't find bipartisan deals even on issues they agree on, like prescription drug prices. Maybe that will change at some point, but I am not holding my breath. Uh, Joanne, what has most and least surprised you?
2: I think the fact that Julie and I have both been covering healthcare and the politics of healthcare for many years, the Obamacare fight doesn't really surprise me. But the idea that masks became a political symbol, a political divide, you know, a so-called sign of freedom, instead of something that keeps you from getting a disease that can really harm you and that can protect your family, your friends, your coworkers, the people standing next to you on a bus or a train. Or grocery store line. The fact that masks became political, I did not expect that to be political. And what didn't surprise me, oh, I'm not really surprised that we're still fighting about the ACA 10 years later because we're fighting about Medicare 50, 60 years later. So, I mean, would I have expected every twist and turn do, would I expect, you know, we'd be spending June doing a third Supreme Court here case? No, but the, the, the basic, it became so part of political identity that it does not surprise me that we're still you know sticking our tongues out at each other over Obamacare.
0: <laughs> Margot?
3: Well, I feel like a really important uh, value that I try to, uh, promote in myself uh, as a reporter is just to like retain my capacity for surprise. I think the longer I stay in Washington, the easier it gets to be a little bit cynical and a little bit jaded and just assume that I know everything and I really work hard on uh, not doing that and continuing to ask the next question or to consider some unlikely thing that may happen. And I will say in that vein, I think something that really did surprise me. Um, has been the stunning speed and success of these COVID vaccines, that they were developed on this uh, unbelievably fast timeline, that they uh, work so well, and that they have been, you know, for the most part, broadly accepted by the public. I mean, you could just imagine us being in a completely different place as a nation and a world without the development of this technology and the trust that most people uh, seem to have in it. So uh, that has been um, most recently the most surprising thing to me. Uh, And it does give me hope for lots of other things. You know, we were talking about Alzheimer's, which is this notoriously difficult disease to treat. And it just makes me feel a sense of optimism that maybe science can solve more of our problems than we might have thought. You know, what doesn't surprise me is that all of these policy issues that we talk about continue to be very hard and very complicated. I think that there are lots of uh, easy soundbites that politicians can reach for. But I think solutions to the actual problems of health policy are always much more nuanced and always involve kind of elaborate trade-offs. And I just continue to always be thinking about that complexity. And
1: uh, <laughs> it's it's enduring truth.
0: And that's why we will have a podcast for for many more episodes. Sarah.
1: So I think what um, surprised me is that Republicans did not um, overturn the ACA when they had the ability to do that under Trump and control both the Senate and the House. Obviously, I think key problem there was they didn't have a replacement a true replacement plan to (laughs) insert in as well. Um, But they had spent, you know, the better of eight years or so, um, you know, with that being their key political issue. And then when they had the chance to do something about it, they couldn't quite get it done. Um, John McCain obviously sort of made a very dramatic moment. What hasn't surprised me, I think, is a little bit of that like cynical Washington reporterness in me is that there are a lot of health policy issues that people have pledged to solve over the past few years that you seem to, again, make no progress in like drug pricing, um, is an issue I follow very closely where it just feels like it never quite gets enough momentum. And there's just too many solid sort of arguments and lobbyists on the other end that make it really hard. It's hard to get things done in Washington. So it's never sort of surprising to me when things don't get done. It's when it does get done that it kind of, you kind of say, hmm
0: Thing. Yeah. Occasionally things get done Have right. to keep you paying attention. Right. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now we will play my interview with Chiquita brooks LaSure, the new head of CMS, who will be trying to get things done. And then we will come back with our extra credits for this week. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast for one of her first interviews, the brand new administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Chiquita Brooks-Lashore. Welcome to What the Health, Madam Administrator, and congratulations on your confirmation. Thank you so much, Julie. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So CMS, for those who aren't familiar with it, oversees not just Medicare and Medicaid, but also the Affordable Care Act. Which of these programs is your most immediate priority? I know they all are, but one of them is going to have to take precedence. Such an important question. They all are
4: priorities, of course. Maybe I'll start by saying how excited I am that already before I got here, the Congress and the president passed the American Rescue Plan. And what a difference this is making to American families with the increased enrollment. So, of course, that is something that we want to build on affordable coverage for everyone in our country. So I would say that continuing to build on that piece, and it really does cut across the other programs as well, will be one of our first priorities. My second burning desire is really on health equity, as we've talked about a lot. And again, I see that as cutting across all of the programs. The three M's, as I like to say, Medicaid marketplace and
0: Medicare. So we've been tracking the undoing of the Trump health policies. I know that court cases forced some early changes, particularly on Medicaid work requirements. Any hint on what we can see undone next? I think that we, the administration,
4: are really focused on supporting the ACA, and our focus is really going to be on these pieces that the president and the secretary have outlined of making sure we are building on coverage. We've seen through the pandemic what happens when we as a society don't have health insurance and how important it is. And so I would say that our focus is going to be on making sure that the regulations and the policies are focused on increasing coverage.
0: I know a lot of journalists and even some analysts have been surprised by the robust enrollment in the marketplace plans since president reopened them. Are you surprised and how big a priority will it be to keep those currently temporary increased subsidies from the American Rescue Plan in place permanently you know i'm not surprised
4: i'm incredibly pleased but um over the last couple of years i've worked with a lot of the state based marketplaces and we could see over the last few years the difference in enrollment when the states were actively pushing coverage and I believe that most people who are not enrolled want it. It's about knowledge and affordability. And the American Rescue Plan offered a tremendous opportunity for people who couldn't afford coverage to get it. So, no, I'm not as surprised. But again, really just over the moon please, of what we've seen.
0: And, and the importance of keeping those subsidies? Absolutely. So that's going to be something that that you all are going to push for. I think that it was
4: outlined in the president's budget and certainly from my perspective, seeing, again, on the ground what a difference it makes for people for affordable coverage that we need to make
0: sure that those are in place. So on Medicaid, um, states seem pretty eager to take up the new option to continue coverage for new mothers, but not so enticed by more federal money to fully expand the program in states that haven't done it yet. Might the administration support some way to fill that coverage gap for those states without state action, as uh, Georgia Senators Warnock and Ossoff are suggesting? I mean, I think that we
4: have seen over the past several years that some states have been reluctant to expand coverage. And it's important, as the president has outlined, for us to fill that gap right? We don't want people in certain states not to have coverage just because they're in those states. And so I do think that's going to be a priority of making sure people have coverage. I think it's great that there is the funding in the American Rescue Plan and hope states will take up the option because ideally states are able to craft policies in their own states that they're closer to the ground. But if not, um, the public option or other coverage certainly would be a strategy to make sure that people in those states have coverage.
0: Is there going to be sort of a, a new uh, emphasis on Medicaid? I know the, the previous administration wanted to make Medicaid basically either go away or sort of lessen the emphasis on Medicaid as a way to cover more Americans. Definitely. I think I know that the administration,
4: certainly the Secretary Becerra, were all very supportive of all of the programs, including Medicaid. I think what we learned from the repeal and replace debate was just how much people in this country care about the Medicaid program and how it's a lifeline to millions of people education even and nursing homes in places where I think are less talked about. The program is a backbone to
0: our country. I need to sneak in a Medicare question, which used to be everything that CMS was about. Um, There's been some concern that the huge economic dip of 2020 could speed up the impending insolvency of the Part A trust fund. I know you don't control when the trustees reports are issued. That's above your pay grade. But how concerned are you about having the trust fund turn negative on your watch? Medicare solvency is a an ongoing issue. Every
4: couple of years, we as a society have this discussion. And certainly because of the pandemic and the economic crisis um, that we experienced last year, we could see insolvency accelerated. I know we'll be working with Congress to make adjustments. It's an exercise that I used to spend a lot of time working on before we did the ACA. And I expect that we will be spending some time this year with the Congress on this issue as well.
0: Might there be an opportunity in addressing the insolvency to do something about Uh, more benefits for the program or lowering the eligibility age? I hope that we, as
4: when we're looking at solvency, are really focused on making sure that we keep the Medicare program robust, right, and modernizing it. And that may mean some changes
0: that strengthen the Medicare program. I hope we will be able to talk to you again along the way Uh, Chiquita Brooks-Lashore thank you so much for joining us so great to be with you okay we are back it's time for our extra credit segment where we recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too don't worry if you miss it we will post the list on the podcast page at khn.org Sarah why don't you go first this week Sure. So I have a story from
1: my coworker Derek Gingrey at the Pink Sheet um, called "Patient Support May Have Helped Push Aduhelm Toward Approval," the Alzheimer's drug we've been talking about this episode. Um, and he kind of chronicled some of the work the Alzheimer's Association did, particularly after the negative FDA advisory committee to meet with top FDA officials, bring in patients, and have them make the case for approval of the drug. And FDA seemed to very much acknowledge um, that patient testimony like this really helped, made a big impact in their decision. And I think that meeting is, it's a little bit odd, the timing of the meeting. So I thought that was like interesting that he found out about that. Joanne.
2: Um, This is a New Yorker piece by Chris Komorski called The Death of of Hahnemann Hospital. And it's about the role of private equity in, you know, an investor came in thinking he was going to turn around Hahnemann, which is a hospital in Philadelphia that treats mostly poor and many uninsured people. And instead of turning it around, he drove it into the ground. Whether private equity is becoming, having a bigger role in healthcare, whether this is a sort of, you know, glimpse at the future of troubled hospitals, of, of whether we're going to see companies buying them and shutting them down, like we have seen with many other industries, including newspapers, um, or whether this is sort of a one-off, you know, time will tell. But it's a pretty good, sad story about the death of a hospital that many people relied on for decades.
0: Yeah, a teaching hospital, too. Margo.
3: Um, I wanted to draw your attention to an article from my colleague, John Illegon, that uh, published in The Times a couple weeks ago, actually. Uh, The headline is, On That Edge of Fear, One Woman's Struggle with Sickle Cell Pain. And this reporter spent about two and a half years following this woman with sickle cell disease, which is a largely genetic disorder that disproportionately affects people of African descent. Uh, And there are not very many good treatments for this disease, but it causes these very painful crises when people have blood that gets sort of stuck in various parts of their body. And I thought it was such a good story, first of all, about just the experience of race in the American medical system, but also about what it is like to have a disease that for you is intense and personal and affects your life in lots of ways but medicine does not have much to offer you. Um, And so this woman, you know, just was facing a lot of adversity. She was experiencing a lot of pain and she was encountering a healthcare system that was very concerned about the overuse of opioid medications. And she was having a lot of difficulty treating her pain and a lot sort of lack of empathy by the medical practitioners who were treating her. And I don't know, it was in some ways a very sad story because it just felt like, This woman has this problem, and there's not a good solution to her this problem, but I also thought it was very insightful about the healthcare system. And it did end in a somewhat uplifting way. It seems like she is working with a care team that is more attuned to her needs and seems to be giving her more
0: reassurance and more optimism about the future of her disease. Yeah, all right, well, mine is from HuffPost and the Center for Public Integrity. It's called Spreading Vaccine Fears and Cashing In by Liz Essley white It's an investigation into the fact that not only are a small group of people uh, having a reach that public health would kill for, but that they are making millions of dollars selling books, videos, and sometimes diet supplements while they are sowing doubt about COVID and other vaccines. It is quite a piece of work. Uh, you really should read it. So that is our show for the week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who has hung in for all 200 of our episodes. Here's too many more. Uh, also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. we what the health? All one word at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Sarah, I'm at Sarah Carlin. Margot at Sanger Katz. Joanne at Joanne Cannon. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.